I am Alon Ben Mir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Brendan O'Leary, Professor of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. He has served as a political and constitutional advisor to the United Nations, the European Union, the Kurdistan Regional Government of Iraq, and the Government of the UK and Ireland. In this episode, we discuss Kurdish autonomy, the war in Iraq, and the effect of the civil war in Syria and on Iraqi Kurdistan. So I'm, I'm absolutely, I, I read uh, as much as I could about your, um, the, the papers you wrote about uh, the Kurds. And um, you know the referendum that was passed a couple, about two years ago, I think. September of 2017. 2017, yeah. And the, the, of course, the referendum passed, and uh, um, and then no one was willing to accept that. Certainly, not specifically, Iraq was to me was an, a natural thing for them to to oppose it, to reject it. And uh, and you alluded, you spoke about you know you are in favor of Kurdish independence. Am I right? My original position as an advisor was to facilitate the Kurds in making the best possible arrangements for themselves in a reconstructed Iraqi multinational federation. So the reason they asked me to be an advisor was because of my uh, expertise, alleged or otherwise, on power sharing. I was not yeah. brought in as someone to facilitate okay. uh, yeah. their goal of achieving, uh, the goal of achieving independence. But even in 2004-2005, Kurds were preoccupied with their own tragic history, entirely understandably. Every single time they have made an autonomy settlement with the Baghdad government, that settlement has uh, eventually been repudiated yes, by Baghdad. Yeah. And there's a, a consistent history of recentralization and breaking of significant autonomy promises. So one of the things that we focused on was um, what could be done in circumstances in which uh, Baghdad might once again uh, attempt recentralization. So my memory of 2004-2005 is that the Kurdish team and their advisors had two strategies. One was to facilitate making Iraq as decentralized as possible, yes, yeah. thereby inhibiting the possibility of a revival of power in Baghdad. So that's why the Constitution had provisions to enable other regions to form in Iraq with the same powers and capacities as Kurdistan. And as you'll recall, there was a coalition at that time between one of the major Shiite parties and the Kurds, yes. who jointly feared the revival of a centralized despotism in Baghdad, mm -hmm. and who feared that the Sunnis would somehow get back to power in Baghdad and, and re-centralize. So that was project number one, make Iraq as decentralized as possible. We held the naive illusion that America might see that as in America's interests. After all, if you have removed Saddam Hussein from power, if you've broken the power of the Baghdad government, and then you introduce democracy, one of the automatic consequences is that the Shia are going to be the well, overall majority. Well, that was, it should have been so obvious, you know, before invading Iran. 
Of course. That they're going to change the regime this year, are going to win majority. If you're going to introduce democratic form of government, which in my view was a, a mass major mistake by the uh, United States in doing so, wherever we think, let's introduce democracy as if it was a panacea. I, I don't agree with you. I think that introducing democracy, if they were going to invade, that's a separate question, but uh, after invasion, I think it was unavoidable to reintroduce, to introduce To democracy. introduce democratic form of government, but it should have been, in my view, in any way, in stages. That is, you have an objective, and how do you go about it, rather than impose it without any culture, without any tradition of any form of a democracy in Iraq, I from I think, the day of inception. Right. I think we can all agree that however it was done, it could have been done a lot could better. Could have been better, absolutely. But, so I agree on that. But once, yes. you, once you accept that you're going to democratize Iraq, the consequence is obvious that there's going to be a Shiite majority. And either that Shiite yes. majority will seek to remake the whole of Iraq in its image, or it will accept power sharing with Sunnis and Kurds. Now, if you think about America's policy towards Iraq since 1980, I don't mean 2005, mm -hmm. its policy has broadly been speaking, broadly speaking, been one of dual containment, yes, preventing yeah. either Tehran or Baghdad mm -hmm. being too yeah. powerful. Yeah. But if you democratize Iraq, you automatically have a very strong pro-Iranian constituency inside Baghdad. That's entirely natural because of the uh, pro-Shiite yeah. uh, yeah. sentiments yeah. among a very large section of Iraq's population. And the fact that the two major parties who led the Shiite bloc had, in effect, either been formed in Iran or had been protected in exile in Iran. Exactly, exactly. So, so that meant that we thought eventually the penny would drop in Washington, that it was in America's interest to support a decentralized multinational federation rather than a re-centralized Iraq which would be dominated by Shiites who would invariably be supported by Iran or be sympathetic to Iran. But that didn't happen and, and my explanation for why that didn't happen is, is fairly straightforward. Because America mismanaged its initial occupation in yeah. all sorts of ways, um, it helped precipitate a more or less inevitable uh, counter-revolutionary movement among the Sunni Arabs. And the American response to that was to believe that the solution was a rebuilt Iraqi army and a re-strengthened federal government in Baghdad that wouldn't really be particularly federal. It would be, yeah, it yeah. Would be centralized. Yeah. So they, they, they got themselves into this logic of re-centralizing Iraq and then having the illusion that they could somehow then control the new creature that they would be creating in Baghdad. So to cut a long story short, they defeat initially the Sunni Arab insurgency in the West and the center. And then they ask the Shia to take back the Sunnis into government with them in a seriously equal partners. Now, anybody who had the slightest knowledge of intersectarian relations in Iraq would know that there would be no way Absolutely. that the Shia I mean, could accept this. It was this. The, the most naive thing that uh, we have, the way we approached. I mean, going back all through, throughout, including the Obama administration, I mean, going all Absolutely. the way to this, to this very day. Uh, uh, this is not partisan. This yeah. error is shared yeah. by Republicans and Democrats, by yeah. Joe Biden, by um, uh, Barack Obama, uh, and by George Bush Jr. And his, yeah. and his advisors. I mean, let alone, you know, having the Maliki government and the Maliki himself, 
I mean, he, he basically destroyed everything that we were hoping for, and nothing much has been done about it. The, the joke used to be, if, if there was an independent Kurdistan, there would be several statues. A statue to, <laughs> a statue to Mullah Mustafa Barzani, yeah. a, a statue to Jalal Talabani, uh -huh. uh, a statue to Masood, Barzani, uh -huh. and then there would be two other statues, one to Maliki and, and one to Ambassador Bremer. <laughs> Bremer, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I had a, a podcast with Bremer, <laughs> and he said to me right away, he said, we'll talk about anything you want, but let's not talk about after the invasion in Iraq. <laughs> when I, well, I mean, well, one of the stories, uh, <laughs> I, I think your listeners will find this difficult to believe, but I, I have this story on extremely reliable authority. In the making of the transitional administrative law, Kurdistan proposed that Kurdistan should, be, should have the right to ratify the constitution. And Bremer looked around the room and said, no federation ever ratifies its constitution by consulting the states in question. Somebody had to hand him a copy of the American Constitution Incredible. to show him uh, that this is what was required. He, he had been, if, if my memory is correct, he had been the American ambassador to the Netherlands. And he looked next door at Belgium and concluded that Belgium didn't work and therefore one could not have a multi-ethnic, multinational, multilingual federation. And in fact, of course, Whatever you think of Belgium, it's a remarkably long-lived success story. It shows yeah, that you yeah, can actually yeah. have a multilingual, multinational federation. Except, except that, you know, talking about two different worlds, West versus the East. I mean, this is, uh, this it's is, Well, there are all sorts of grounds because for being... A, yeah, I'm I mean, sorry to cut across you. No, 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 no. I was just saying, you know, uh, I, I would say in terms of political development, a democratic form of developing kind of government, in, in, in the Middle East, it's a 30, 40 years behind, 50 years behind the West, at least. I mean, I'm not suggesting it would take 50 years for them to get to the point where they will have functioning democracy. Right. Uh, but again, like what I was saying before, there was no process to introduce a system that has not been implemented anywhere in the region. There was a process, but it was done extremely badly. badly. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, we may have different perspectives on how quickly people can adjust to democratic government. If we take the Germans, um, after World War II, quite remarkably and quite quickly, West Germany became a functioning democratic government. And you could give all sorts of contingent explanations. Prussia is out of Germany. That means it's easier for the rest of yeah, Germany but, but to be even a democracy. Hitler, but let me finish. Yeah, sorry. So yeah. I think the secret of Germany's re-democratization largely lay in its homogeneity. Mm -hmm. So a, a homogeneous nation-state can democratize relatively painlessly. Absolutely. In conditions where you have multiple ethnicities, multiple religious uh, communities based on authoritarian religious doctrines, it's going to be incredibly more difficult. So I agree with you that it was always going to be a, an extraordinarily difficult task to democratize Iraq. 
And therefore, the question was, how could you possibly make Iraq into as decentralized a federation as possible? That was the only prospect yeah. of success. And it's my judgment that at no stage did the Pentagon properly understand that. At no stage were there significant voices in the State Department that understood that. Uh, and in consequence, we, we got the mess that we eventually uh, And I think, saw. and I absolutely, and there's another layer to this, and that is, I have to think in terms of, we have an Iraq established in 1922, and being governed by the Sunnis all the way to 2003. Right. And then these Sunnis, yeah, I, I talk to Sunnis, to this day they think they are a majority. Yeah, partly because, <laughs> partly because they count the Kurds yeah. as part yeah. of them. And what they are saying, what they are saying, and all of a sudden I have an election. The people who have been in power for these many years are now out of power. And you had an election where a new government, a Shiite government, led by a brutal person. Which, I mean, had Maliki been a decent person and realized, well, internalized what I was just saying, these people being governed by, by you know, we were subordinated and we know how it feels. Now, let's just, you know, there was no mentality of the Mandela mentality there. Correct. That's the problem, was it? That's the other layer that I, made it extraordinarily difficult. I think, Alon, you put your finger on something vital. A formerly dominant minority resists democratization like the plague. Exactly. Um, and it will perhaps do its best to come back to power it, through any means possible. Exactly. So was there, was there a strategy for incorporating Sunni, Sunnis that could have worked, Sunni Arabs? In my view, there was. And the strategy was the one proposed by the Kurds, namely that they would have a region of their own, they would be able to police themselves, they would get a proportionate share of Iraq's oil resources. They, however, believed that that was a strategy to lead them to diet on sand on the, and the Quran, <laughs> yes. uh, because they thought their <laughs> yeah. areas had no right? yes. uh, natural resources. Yes. Um, and they remain mostly committed to the project of recentralization. They believed that somehow they could get back to power in Baghdad and recontrol everything. Um, and we're living with the consequences of that. Now, to get back to your, your very original question about the holding of the referendum, the referendum was initially planned for 2014. And you'll recall that was after uh, Maliki had engaged in extensive dictatorial measures, um, repression of um, large parts of yeah. Arab Iraq, and had threatened the security of Kurdistan by um, bringing the Iraqi army into yeah. the disputed territories, something that had to be mediated by America. And he followed it up with the explicit intention of depriving Kurdistan of its share of Iraq's oil revenue. That's right. Because he objected to right. Kurdistan having an independent energy policy. So the, what people forget is that the initial plan was to have a referendum on independence in 2014. And it's the materialization of ISIS that postpones the holding of the referendum. And, of course, ISIS is not some entity that materialized from the sky. ISIS, okay. ISIS is basically a new form of Sunni Arab resistance to transformation, both in Iraq and, and it's in born, Syria. Uh, born, I mean, 
start to consolidate itself immediately after the war. But by 2004, they already began to organize themselves, albeit it was not uh, so transparent. But some people think, you know, all of a sudden, exactly what you said, they didn't come out from nowhere. Right. They, were, they started there 10, 12 years before they surfaced Indeed. in an organized way. So you can see the personnel. They were, they're mostly former Ba'athists or the children of former Ba'athists and their former Sunni Islamists because, of course, when Saddam got into trouble after 1991, he encouraged a partial revival of Islam that then got yeah. beyond his control. So the Kurds were asked to postpone the referendum in the interests of joining the coalition in yeah. the defeat of ISIS, yeah. which, of course, they did. And they, um, they had, in, in some senses, they had no choice because ISIS was initially very successful. And there was an extraordinary moment when it looked as if Erbil would fall to ISIS. That's right, yeah. And two forces come to the rescue of the Kurds. Not the Baghdad government, Tehran and the United States. Both, for different reasons, work out, well, actually, if we let ISIS get control of Kurdistan, uh, uh, the, the game is up. The Sunnis will be coming back to power in a dictatorial way throughout this region. That's prevented. And you have this extraordinary pattern of Iranian and American de facto undeclared cooperation. Iran, however, is playing the long game. America's always playing the short game. Yes, exactly. Uh, and yeah. America's priority is defeat of ISIS. And then they're going to hand power back to the Baghdad. And get out, government. yeah. <laughs> um, so if we, if we return to the referendum... Kurdistan's plans have often been misunderstood. They held a referendum, and it's frequently called, you'll hear people, particularly Arabs in Iraq, calling it a failed referendum. It wasn't a failure. Of course not. Of the course referendum not. achieved remarkable success. 93% voted yes, yes. on a 72% turnout. Um, that suggests, of course, that there was some resistance to the idea of, of of independence, but there was significant support and it was a relatively uh, free and fair vote. Some of us, including Kurds, believe that there would have been a better way to conduct the referendum. The strategic idea was to follow what the Scandinavian countries had done when they uh, applied to join the European Union. Finland voted first followed by Sweden, mm -hmm. followed by Norway. And the idea was to go with the country that was most enthusiastic first, mm -hmm. the one that was less enthusiastic next, and then last place, the one that was least enthusiastic. And our collective idea was that Duhok should vote first, then Erbil, then Suleimania, and then lastly, Kirkuk. And the strategic merits of doing that to this day, in my view, uh, were obvious. It, each case would go uh, predictably and would allow a moment for people to get used to the idea that Kurdistan was serious about becoming independent and trigger opportunities for negotiations. By incorporating Kirkuk directly into the referendum, even though there were all sorts of very good grounds for doing so, they sacrificed the possibility of constitutional legitimacy yeah. and they led 
it led many people to assume that the reason they were doing this, that was simply to get Kirkuk's oil. Now, why did this happen? Why, why did they choose to the, have the referendum in one block rather than do it in the way that I suggested? Those were the alternatives mm -hmm. that the Kurds yes. confronted. The answer is straightforward. The Kurdistan Democratic Party was strongly in favor of going for independence. Its major rival, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, was fearful that in an independent Kurdistan, it would become a minority party. It was already a minority party. It was already declining. It was saturated with much more corruption than its rival yeah. and had lost standing with its public. It was entrenched in power in Suleymaniyah governorate, and it was the leading Kurdish player in Kirkuk. So they wanted both Suleymaniyah and Kirkuk always to go together, mm -hmm. and they were absolutely terrified that a move to independence would displace the PUK from power. Now, I must be accurate. Not all of the PUK thought this way. A significant no, of proportion course, of the PUK yes, yeah. under Kosrat mm -hmm. Rasul wanted to go with the KDP for independence. But there was a significant fraction, particularly around the Talibani family, who feared that the family would lose influence and the party would lose influence. And they placed uh, their so to speak, dynastic interests against the interests of Kurdistan as a whole. I think they feared that if there was a separate vote in each governorate, that, the, that they would face a big problem in Suleymaniyah. They'd have to do what they did anyway, go along with independence to uh, ensure that they were on the same side as their voters. But then they'd be locked into the KDP strategy. Yeah. So what, what happened, yeah. sorry, Anna, yeah, no, no. It, um, is an extraordinary development. After the referendum was, was held, the Kurds waited for negotiations, hoping for recognition. They had a front line. Um, the KDP protected the West, the PUK protected the East. And crudely what happens is an agreement is reached between a faction of the PUK, led by people who were not elected to even internal party offices, the Baghdad government, the Iranian general, General Soleimani, and I believe the support of the British ambassador and perhaps the American ambassador. Can't confirm the latter. Mm -hmm. What they did was to allow an opening in the PUK line of defense, which enabled the uh, Baghdad army and militias led by Shiite militias, most of which had been trained and uh, armed from Iran. They were able to outflank the KDP lines in Kirkuk mm -hmm. and quickly took over all of the historically disputed territories, leading to a crushing of the Kurdish position. So it was important Kurdistan did not get international support. It was important that it didn't get regional support. But what crucially undermined it was the deep internal divisions between two parties and the deep internal divisions inside one of those Kurdish parties, namely the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan. And that, if you like, is the historic lesson of Kurds since the 1920s. Their internal divisions invariably allow their regional enemies to govern them. 
Yeah, a couple of things that um, you know you you suggested that the election if she, had they hold this election in four different sections one part of the time. Uh, we don't know how the Iraqi government might have reacted. Say, Suleimani, you know, election, whatever the result might have been, how the Iraqi government would have reacted to just one particular election in one particular... One referendum. One referendum. We don't know that. No, but we can say this. Nothing in Iraq's constitution prevented the Kurdistan regional government from having a referendum inside the territory of the recognized Kurdistan regional government. So America would have known, the European Union would have known, that they had no uh, basis on which to support Iraqi repression uh, of the KRG if they held uh, the referendum first inside the recognized governorates. It was choosing to put Kirkuk into the pot with everything else I, that I think undermined exactly. the, the legal integrity of the Kurdish position. And I think that is the second mistake they made in the referendum, that is including Kirkuk in particular. I think that for, for the Iraqi government, Kirkuk was the red line, so to speak. Well, it, it was certainly, <clears throat> uh, it gave them a casus belly, an excuse. Yeah. Um, but we have to understand, to be fair, why the Kurds were concerned about Kirkuk. Well, of course. I mean, so you it's, know. it's been a Kurdish majority city. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the, the governorate, the province, has been Kurdish majority since the 1950s. The city has gradually become had gradually become more Kurdish. Uh, so Saddam responded to that by altering the boundaries yes, of the yeah, yeah, government yeah, yeah, yeah. and expelling Kurds yes. and indeed expelling Turkmen. That's right. And coercively assimilating the minorities, including the Christians there. That project of Saddam's is defeated by the American arrival um, in 2003. Yeah. And one of the things that happened is that Kurds, with American support, liberated Kirkuk. And there was a large flight took place of the um, Arab population from Kirkuk, including the settlers that Saddam had brought from the south to alter the demographic yes, character of yes. the city. Right. Guess what? America stopped the, uh, the flight of those who were illegally there and required that they go back, thereby, uh, in effect, uh, giving some uh, seal of legitimacy to Saddam's objectives. Mm -hmm. yeah. So in the negotiation of the transitional administrative law and in the negotiation of the uh, permanent constitution, Kirkuk was a major question. Everyone could see that there were major injustices that needed to be rectified. And they were written into constitutional text how this would happen. And most importantly, there was a clause in Article 140 of the Constitution that placed an affirmative duty on the federal government to hold a referendum in Kirkuk and other disputed territories no later than December of 2007. And it was because that article had been uh, deliberately uh, not implemented, the Kurds believed they had a right to go ahead with the referendum. They, they became understandably impatient at the failure of uh, the Iraqi government to fulfill its own constitution. So you, you're left with this remarkable um, paradox. The federal government of Iraq has broken um, the majority of the articles in Iraq's constitution. 
I, I can demonstrate this ad nauseum yeah. for you if you want. Yeah, no, no, no. But the clear, Kurds yeah. break one yeah. once, and somehow they're appallingly illegal and lawless. Now let's 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 say where do we go from here in terms of what with the Iraqi Kurds, and and I want to look at it also from your perspective in the context of the Kurds in Syria, the Kurds in Iran, and the Kurds in Turkey, and we know what's going on with the Kurds in Turkey in particular. But how do you see that? There was once Kurdistan, obviously, it was um, tragically divided between these four countries. The, the, the likelihood of these four countries to cooperate in any form or fashion in order to give the Kurds any kind of opportunity to regroup, so to speak, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It just won't happen. Where do we go from here as far as the start with the Kurdish Iraqis, from your perspective? Well, I, I want to paint a little bit of background, which I think will help your listeners. Up until 2013 and 2014, it looked like relations between the Kurdistan regional government in Iraq and Turkey were on a remarkable path from detente to an alliance. They had shared interests. The export of oil and gas from Kurdistan through Turkey fulfilled Turkey's ambition to become an energy hub for Europe. The more liberal and conservative Kurds of Iraq were easier for the Ankara government to work with than their own revolutionary Marxist Kurds inside southeast Turkey. Mm -hmm. So that looked like a potentially stable equilibrium. It's been broken on both sides by the um, materialization of Erdogan in effect as a, uh, an unacknowledged dictator and an Islamist dictator with ambitions, perhaps, to restore Ottoman uh, hegemony. Uh, definitely, definitely. Now, one, what, one has to ask the question, why believe that Erdogan is permanently stable? Um, re recent, uh, sorry, 20th century Turkish history does not imply that Erdogan's regime is going to be long-lasting. So Kurds can hope for a restoration of some reasonable relationship with a Turkish regime. And they could even hope for improved relations with um, a calmer Erdogan. That would enable them to export their oil and gas and continue their uh, relatively successful economic development. The Syrian question is the one that is potentially the most dangerous. Because you can imagine the worst case scenario would be one in which America withdraws without any degree of responsibility. And then either the Syrian Ba'ath regime reconquers Syrian Kurdistan, or Turkey does it. Mm -hmm. Because in the absence of American air support, the Kurdish forces would be extremely exposed. Now, what will happen? Well, the most obvious thing we can predict is that if either the Ba'athist government or the Turkish government comes back into Syrian Kurdistan, there'll be mass flight. And the only place they can go is into the Kurdistan region of Iraq, which is already deluged with refugees and IDPs from the region, which would place a, a very serious burden on the Kurdistan regional government. And what will make it worse is that the Kurds of Syria, who have fought an admirable, admirable fight against ISIS, they are uh, 
for organizational reasons indistinguishable from the PKK of Turkey. And they're opposed to the principal Kurdish party in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, yes, the Kurdistan yes, Democratic yes. Party. So one can see further profound instability. That's why it's vital that the European Union, that NATO, that America's allies uh, send a very clear message that if, if you want to preserve um, the one uh, beneficial outcome of the removal of Saddam, namely the uh, creation of a, a civilized, relatively decent government inside the Kurdistan region of Iraq, then you can't leave Syria irresponsibly. Now, I can't tell because it's impossible to predict how President Trump will behave. I can't oh, tell what's going to happen there. But that could be catastrophic. Now, on the other side of the geography, we have Iran. Now, but before we go yes, to Iran, in terms sure. of going to Syria, you know, from your perspective, either the Ba'ath Party is going to come back and take over, so to speak, or Iran. But if you look at the history of the, of the Syrian Kurds with the, with the Bashar uh, uh, Assad government, it was pretty much one of not just live and live, live, you know, live, live and let live, but it was fairly amenable over, over time. Well, there was, a, there was a corrupt bargain between the PKK and uh, Assad the Elder. The corrupt bargain took this with form. With half of Assad, yeah, I, I yeah. agree with you. But, 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 but your listeners need to know the nature of the bargain. The bargain was, you can attack Turkey, you can take Syrian Kurds to attack Turkey from us, but you can't organize as uh, Kurds here, and you can't have autonomy here. You can't even have language rights here. Now, what happens when Assad gets into trouble, they then have to start readjusting their relations with their own Kurds. So they promise them, we'll restore your citizenship rights. Yes, yeah, and, but and, what they, and some. Yeah, but they will not, at least this is their current position, they have no intention of granting Syrian Kurds territorial autonomy? Probably uh, not, but the prospect, however, of, uh, I, I think at this juncture for Turkey, who wants to establish permanent presence in Syria, and I don't have any doubt in my mind yeah. about that, uh, whether it's elements of reviving some of the Ottoman domain, be that in Syria, the Balkans, and other places, but if there's going to be any um, quote-unquote takeover, <laughs> Uh, it's going to be more Turkey involvement rather than the Ba'ath Party, with, as far as the Kurds are concerned. Well, and the Kurds are more terrified of Erdogan than they are of Assad. That's the point, and I think that, that, is that may lead, may lead to direct confrontation. Now, the question, I mean, that's why I was, I'm sure you were too, against the withdrawal of American forces, just unilaterally, sure. without any consideration, what is going to happen with, this, with the Syrian um, uh, Kurds. Uh, and now the fact they're keeping three, four hundred uh, back, I'm not sure that's going to do the... Erdogan has more patience than Trump has. Right. Oh, the, the critical question is American air power. Yeah. If America keeps the skies clear of Turkish planes, the, the Kurds and their allies in the Syrian Democratic Forces, they can hold their ground. But they won't be able to hold their ground if Assad decides to come back. Yeah. And that's, that's what we wait to see. Um, but the side will come back only if the, Tur if the Kurds decide to organize themselves and declare autonomous rule. I mean, if they well, don't they have, do they that, have already they have already organized. They the organized themselves, yes, but they haven't declared as yet. No, they have. Well, 
They have. I don't, I don't know. They've done what, it several times. Yeah, but it just hasn't yeah. been noticed. I'm not. Um, yeah, I'm not sure to what extent actually they were trying to enforce that. Uh, you know, they are. I know they were seeking autonomous. So there's a question about it, and I know this is still their objective now. There's no doubt about it. But to, the question is to what extent, extent that's going to threaten the central government of Saddam. Right. So I, 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 their original goal in effect, became to establish an autonomous Kurdish entity in what is called Rojava, among the Kurds. Yeah. But in the course of their successful campaign against ISIS, they built an alliance with certain Arab tribes. And then the Kurds suddenly confronted the difficulty that they would be governing an area which is both Kurdish and Arabic. Yeah. That's been glossed over, uh, sorry, Arab. That's been glossed over in terms of a, a multi-ethnic alliance of Syrian democratic forces. But really, once ISIS is substantively territorially defeated, that's not a natural alliance to hold. No, and it's, Assad, it won't hold. And Assad will, yeah. Assad will want to come back yeah. into southeast Syria and central Syria. And I suspect the Kurds will not resist that. The, the question is, can they negotiate some kind of deal uh, for, to keep most of Rajab? That would be their hope, and that would be what they would hope to get support from, from the Americans but, and but the but European from Union. From your perspective, I mean, to what extent actually that autonomy is as a, actually uh, define also a territory per se? That is, is one thing uh, to say is about we want to live our life as we see fit, you know, not not independent of of Syria, but there is also no definition in terms of territory. That is, it's still Syrian territory, but they want to have autonomous rule living in that. Well, their their I mean, original goal yeah. was to have the three governorates: Efrin, uh, uh, Kamashli, and uh, Kobani. They're discontiguous but they wanted those to be the zones of territorial autonomy. When they were successful militarily, it looked like they were going to link them, and that's when Erdogan intervenes yes. and conquers Efrin with almost not a whisper of complaint from his NATO allies. So that means that in the short term, the only territorial autonomy objective that the Kurds can have is to focus on Kamishli and um, Kobani. And in my view, they'll try to negotiate that with Assad, but he's likely to insist on uh, some kind of local government regime um, inside the Ba'ath system, rather yeah. than granting yeah. them genuine autonomy. Yeah. The, the record of dictatorships in honoring autonomy agreements with armed groups is extraordinarily poor. So I'm, I'm afraid their prospects are not good. You know, let, let, let's look at the general picture for a moment, and then I'd like to hear your views on that. Is there is no prospect for my my as I see it, that the Kurds in either, in all of these four countries will ever abandon who they are, what they are, culture, history, language. That's not going to happen. It may be diminished here and there, but as as a whole, Kurdish Kurdistan per se, however it's divided may be today. Is going to be there. The question is, where do you see this going? I know we, you know, we have to look at s separately at the four different places. 
But where do you see that going 10, 15 years down the line? I mean, let's just say if we were to sit down and talk again about it, what is your vision of what's going to be Kurdistan? Now, we, we know where Erdogan, well, Erdogan is not going to last forever. What's going to happen to the Kurds in Turkey itself, having been persecuted, been, you know, under Erdogan now for the last, at least since the ceasefire, since the negotiations stopped? Uh, and they are now far more resentful than they've ever been. I spent I spend a few couple of years ago, a few years back, um, three days in the parliament, in Turkish parliament, talking only, mostly, to the Kurdish parliamentary. <laughs> so, so they have you know different vision, but not not a single one said to me, Alon, we want total and complete independent states. We are happy to have autonomy, still part of Turkey, but just we want to be left alone. We want to speak our language, we want to have our schools, we want to have our you know, culture, whatever it is that we, we want to preserve all of that. That's what we want. If, if Erdogan listens to this and grants us, there will be an, an end to the conflict with the country. Kurds refer to the four wolves. Turkey is the big bullying wolf. That's right. Iran is the cunning wolf. Syria and Iraq are the nasty little wolves. Yes. <laughs> and it looked for a moment in the last decade that the two smaller wolves were fatally damaged, both Iraq and Syria. Now it looks like they're staging a comeback. It also looks like Turkey is uh, becoming, it's going through a, a, a fresh dictatorial phase. You've asked me to think forward 15 years. I think it will be astonishing if the Iranian regime manages to perpetuate itself. It's cunning. It's, it's not monolithic. Um, it's got a long history of uh, imperial rule over multiple peoples. But I don't think that the dominant Farsi population will live with what they call an Arab government, namely the, the theological, the, the, the theocratic regime mm -hmm. that they live under forever. And the opening up of Iran will, I think, relax a lot of tensions in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, if that happens. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that can happen. It's more difficult for it to happen if Iran is the enemy number one of the United States and of Israel and of Saudi Arabia. But in a long-run scenario, an opening in Iran will help the Kurds a lot. The, the four wolves really don't know how lucky they are. In each of the four locations, the Kurds' first preference has been for autonomy rather yes. than independence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And each time they've won something like it, it's been rescinded. So it's the, the, the aspiration for independence is deep. The sentiment among Kurds to, to be independent and to be, be together, pan-Kurdish sentiment, is strong. But they know, because of the part of the world they live in, that their most feasible project mm -hmm. is autonomy. And therefore, it's, it, if there were something like rational foreign policy, it would be in the interests of the Europeans and the Americans to promote stable, autonomous entities for the Kurds. Here's a horrific scenario. 
I don't think it's the most probable one. But most defeated uh, nationalists in the Muslim world have eventually been tempted by becoming Islamists. If the Kurds were to become Islamists because of the defeat of their reasonable nationalist projects, that would be a very worrisome development for the whole region, for Europe, for the world. And I hope that they don't get pushed into that you're, kind you're of right. This will galvanize the Kurds from everywhere, not just, yeah. not just you know, all of them, all four. There's no, no question about that. I think that's, that's, the, that's the solid link they have, they will maintain um, without even trying because this is who they are. And that is, that is, and I agree with you, that will be the greatest right. danger that can happen. So, Turkey and Iran both have to change to weaken the locks on Kurdish autonomy. There were prospects of that in the last decade. Um, there may be future prospects for that, but I can't foresee them immediately. Yeah, not, not, not under the current regime to begin with. I mean, Erdogan will have to go, and sure. depending who is going to replace him. Uh, well, you should expect, I think, uh, a pragmatic form of bargaining between the Kurdistan regional government and the government of Turkey over energy questions. Well, I can't tell you how pleased I am to have met you, and I'm really grateful for your wonderful take on, on what's going on in that part of the world, you know. Thank you very I, much. I was born there. Were you born in Kurdistan? <laughs> I was born in Baghdad. You were born in Baghdad, so yeah. you're an Iraqi yeah. Jew by yeah, origin. Yeah, an Iraqi Jew, that's right. So I take, uh, and I watch this quite carefully. And so so did, you go in, did your family go in the early 50s? Yes, they left in the early 50s, yeah. Yeah. That's a, that was a, an extraordinary deal because yeah. the, the Zionists wanted all of them and yeah. the Arabs wanted to push them out. That's uh, right. <laughs> I've, met, I've met Kurds in Israel. Uh -huh. um, and one, of the, one of the untold stories is the, the small number of um, Jewish people in the households of the Barzanis. Um, historically, so uh -huh. that they were their servants, along with Christians, which is a kind of Middle Eastern pattern. If you have minorities uh -huh. in your household, you can trust them, because uh -huh. they're not going to take over. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Thank you very again. much. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page, and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.